Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. A pandemic is the kind of story you hope you never have to cover. It's the story you hope never comes to pass in the first place. But it has. And in early 2020, as journalists and arguably the government were reeling from what many labelled as the Brexit crisis, a new crisis was emerging that put the squabbles between Westminster and Brussels into perspective. In the first week of March, the first teams at The Telegraph trialled working from home to see whether it was feasible to put out a daily paper, update the website and make videos and, of course, podcasts from our kitchen tables. By halfway through the month, the newsroom was all but empty. Covering the coronavirus outbreak has come with its own set of challenges, reams of complicated data, science that isn't yet peer-reviewed, the proliferation of misinformation, and then there's the responsibility of shedding light on the stories of those in much less fortunate situations than your own, stories that can be harrowing. I'm Theodora Leloudis, The Telegraph's podcast editor, and I'm delighted to be shedding some light on our coverage of the pandemic for this special episode of Coronavirus The Latest. Joining me are two colleagues at the forefront of it all, Anne Gulland, the deputy editor of the Unparalleled Global Health Security Team, and Dominic Gilbert, one of our stellar data journalists. And Dom, thank you so much for joining me. I know you are incredibly busy. No, it's a pleasure. Thank Thanks for having us. Since I've already made you battle with the tech listeners. We may or may not have been here half an hour already. Let me start by asking you about the challenges from working from home. I guess in journalism, lots of our times usually spent interviewing people in the office. Um, I go to quite a lot of events and conferences. So first of all, tell us where you are and uh, do you miss the office? Dom? Yeah, it's been a difficult one because we actually, we moved house about the time that lockdown um, happened. It was the same week that lockdown was announced. So I'm now in Brixton, but it's been quite a surreal start to my time here because nothing's open, obviously. So we haven't really had a chance to explore the place, but um, it's, it's, it's been fine. Um, we got through safely. And I think working from home really is, it, it wasn't that much of a pivot for us just because a lot of data journalism is done online. And frankly, making the most of Zoom has sort of enabled us to tap into press conferences far easier than we would have done otherwise having to go to locations. So it's, it's, it streamlined a lot of processes, but it's, I'm not going to say it's been the easiest process. And do you, do you share my concern that working from home means zero work-life balance? Yes, no, definitely. I think, I think it is hard to switch off and, you know, the day can sort of stretch from sort of 7am to kind of 10pm. I mean, I'm not saying that that's my day every day, but, you know, you, you are kind of 
on all the time. There's no excuses. It's there for say, oh, I can't, I can't, I'm, I've got to go, you know, I've got a theatre trip planned or I've booked cinema tickets or something like that. So, you, you know, everyone's around. I mean, I used to be, before working at The Telegraph, I was freelance for about a long, 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 long time. So I, I'm quite used to working from home. But I think for us, I mean, my, I've got teenagers and my son should have been doing his GCSEs now so you know I suppose I mean I don't have small kids which I think must be a nightmare but you know there's all that kind of challenges and you know if my husband's on the phone he can be quite loud (laughs) that's that kind of thing I tell you what I wonder what's going to be the office is going to be like though when we get back I just wonder what the mice are gonna what they'll have done (laughs) I just imagine we'll get back and they'll just be like a gazillion mice running the show. If you follow any Telegraph journalists on Twitter, it's no secret that our office has a little bit of a mice problem, which allegedly, <laughs> allegedly, for all the lawyers listening there, comes from um, a certain fast food chain in Victoria Station that I, I won't mention for legal reasons. Um, but, but I agree, I, I do uh, worry that they might have rather made home in our, in our desk drawers. Both of you, what's it like pivoting your entire job to one story? I mean, politics has dominated so much of The Telegraph's coverage in recent years. I've already mentioned the B word, Brexit. Dom, I know you moved to The Telegraph ahead of last year's election, so you do have some experience on the political beat. But this coronavirus certainly wasn't a story you could prepare for. Uh, Tell us a bit what it's like focusing so much on on the pandemic. Yeah, I I don't think anyone was really prepared for the amount of work we'd have to throw at this one story. Obviously, everything about it is unprecedented. And all it's meant for us really is that any longer term projects we had in the pipeline have just been been thrown into long grass um, because we've just had to we've had to throw the kitchen sink at this for the last two months. And with with the sheer volume of data that's coming out every day, it's it's really a struggle to keep up with it. So even if we had double the resources, double the time at work which we do working from home because we can never leave our we can never leave our, leave our jobs <laughs> behind as Anne said. Yeah, it's it, it's just been the sole focus and honestly it's it's nice when you get that weekend just to be able to step away from the news cycle because it's it's more intense than it has been for a very long time I think. Have you literally not done a chart that isn't related to the coronavirus in some way in the last like 4 months? I think the last chart I did that wasn't related to the coronavirus was the Australian bushfires. Oh, right. Which was when a long was time January? ago now. Gosh. That's like, yeah. It's a lifetime ago. Feels like it now, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, I can't remember the last story. I mean, I write about global health. So so we've been writing about this on our little patch since January. And I remember my colleague, Sarah Newey, saying, oh, have you seen this thing about this pneumonia in Wuhan in China do you think we should do something and I and I think myself and my boss Paul Newkey both went yeah I suppose it's probably worth doing a little thing about it so it's it's been odd so this is kind of my beat so it's not such a massive kind of change for me or and the team but I suppose we're not doing all the other stuff that we would ordinarily do like so we cover like I don't know, HIV and TB and things like women's rights and things like that. So I feel they're being get, they're getting neglected mm, a bit. Totally. I mean, Anne, you were at The Telegraph for what, two years before? Um, two years. Before you started covering this pandemic. I mean, it has been a complete pivot. We used to have um, Gordon Rayner, our political editor, kind of forefront of the um, news conferences in the morning. And he's still very much there. Obviously, the political team are mainly leading the, the questions at, at the press conferences. But Paul Nuki, our global health security 
equality editor is, is right up there beside him. Actually, let's mm-hmm. talk about that and the, the tension between politics and health. And there's been lots of criticism that health journalists should be uh, more at the forefront of conversations with mm-hmm. the government and, and with bodies like Public Health England. Where do you stand on that criticism? Would you like to be there on that on those Zoom calls and um, putting your questions to the government? Um, yeah, I mean, there have been health journalists and science journalists on those calls. Um, I think, yeah, I think it would make sense if there were, it was a bit, you know, there were other questions and other, um, a, a better, another focus. Um, you know, I don't want to criticise the, my political reporter colleagues, but I don't know, they were a bit odd, those press conferences, because it was the culture secretary the other day. And, um, you know, I'm not desperate, I'm not kind of desperately, keen to go because they're a bit of it's just a bit of theatre in a in the in a way I think it's just they've kind of committed to these daily press conferences so now they have to do them but it's kind of fun isn't it to do it and to kind of ask Boris Johnson if he when he does them which hasn't been very often. Dom when you watch those those government press conferences do you feel frustrated at some of the graphs that they use I mean (laughs) they tend to be either overly simplistic which maybe they have to be to to be projected on that big screen to the nation or sometimes uh, we get certain information some days that we don't the other days and perhaps it's more relevant on other days tell me a bit about what you feel when you're watching all those graphs on screen. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it was the it was the chart with the number comparing the number of deaths across countries, wasn't it? Which they stopped using after after about two months um, of presenting it to the nation every single day. And yeah, it's it's a source of huge frustration every single time because there there is definitely an element of cherry picking data to fit the narrative for that day. And because the goalposts have changed so often with a lot of those metrics, for example, the testing data. At the moment, we're now looking at huge disparities between the number of tests going out and the number of people being tested, which isn't shown in the most transparent way when they present at those press conferences. But luckily, we can. there are so many data sources out there that we can fall back on that we don't have to rely on those kind of sources of data. It would just be nice if there was a little bit more honesty and transparency in the way they presented it every day, um, because I think that caused a lot of confusion among a lot of people when certain data is presented from news outlets and it seems to contradict government data because it's possibly not presented in the best way. Can I, I think this story is kind of interesting in terms of data because, you know, everyone now, you know, with this talk about epidemic curves and epidemiology, and it's like everyone's a data expert these days. I don't know, it just feels, I'd say that was something new. Would you say that, Dom? I don't know, is that something that, you know, people are talking about statistics when maybe they've never... You know, it's more of a kind of general conversation than it ever has been. Absolutely. I mean, data journalism used to be quite a niche subject and a lot of organisations have only recently started to hire data journalists. And it's, it's very encouraging, the amount of data that's around and the interest that people have in understanding data and kind of wrapping their head around why it's so important and why it's presented in the way it is. You know, why we have to take into account certain the prevalence of missing data and all the caveats in reporting it um there's definitely a lot more interest now which i think i think that can only be a good thing to come out of this whole situation that there'll be a lot more kind of literacy among the public about the importance of data journalism just data in our daily lives i think yeah dom where where do you stand on the old adage the stats don't lie (laughs) that's that's a difficult one a really difficult one because the stats don't lie but particularly during this pandemic the problem has been trying to trying to get timely data, trying to get data that we can compare across countries, which, I mean, 
the response hasn't been great from a lot of countries, which has made it very difficult to report on when there's that clamour to know who has the highest death toll, who has the most cases, mm. where is the pandemic spreading the most? And it's it, that's a question we can't accurately answer at the moment with the data we have. But what we can do is we can present the best data we have, find out which is reliable and present that in a way that tells the story as best we can. We'll never have the full picture until probably, as the government says, later in the year or next year once we can't get uniform data across countries and we can start looking backwards with hindsight. Um, I mean, that's the trouble with things like the death data, isn't it? Because, I mean, it's the way people count, you know, how do they count deaths? Is it someone who would have died anyway, but they happen to have COVID-19? It's, you know, and also, the you know, who counts what cases? I mean, Germany seemed to, because they did massive, massive amount of testing, they had quite a high number of cases, but, but very low death rate very low number of deaths. So it's, I think it has presented, you know, that you can't just look, that, you know, these figures have to be really interrogated well. And that's where, you know, people like Dom come in, isn't it? That's why we need people like you, because otherwise it's really hard to kind of get our heads around the figures. Yeah, and, and that's why it's so important to start challenging things like testing, because we yeah. can only really know the situation in the country if they were testing 100% of people which clearly can't happen. But that's why countries like Germany are being held up as one of the best case scenarios, because they've done so much testing that we can really start to understand what's happened in that country. Whereas in the UK, if, if you're not testing people, then people we can't figure out the, the number of people who have recovered from coronavirus because we don't know how many people had it in the first place. And our death rate will look much higher than it is because we don't know how many cases are out there. So we're almost comparing apples and oranges in that respect. That issue of recovery comes up all the time. I'm sure you get it from from your readers. I certainly get it from the listeners. Uh, The question of why we don't report on how many people have recovered in the UK. I mean, when we decided to do this podcast, we put a call out for for readers' questions. And um, Stephen asked, why is everything reported from a negative perspective? Why can't you publish more positive news to try and raise morale? I'd imagine he is referring to recoveries there. First of all, why don't we publish recoveries? I I know the answer, but, but tell the listeners. And um, is it our job to raise morale? I, I think in terms of putting a positive spin on the news, it's been very difficult, certainly from a data perspective, to to find positive lines out of the data that we have because, because the death toll is just so high in the UK. And also the recoveries are later, aren't they? So Well, the, the, the recoveries are later, but also we can only... We can only report on the recoveries of people discharged from hospital, which obviously doesn't tell the whole story. There will be people who don't know they've had it and have recovered. There'll be people who have recovered at home. I mean, I think on the point about positive news, I mean, we are trying to do positive news at the Telegraph, aren't we? We have the, um, there is a little panel in the paper every day on sort of positive news. And we've got the you are not alone stuff that we're doing. So, you know, I, I think we are trying to be positive, but I don't think it's really our job as journalists to you know, we have to hold people to account. So I just don't, I think if the paper was full of positive news all the time, then it would be a bit dull. (laughs) I don't think anyone would really buy it. Yeah, I think um, we've not really been at a stage where we can report positive news until we've really got the virus under control. We're starting to get to that point now. So certainly in some of the data stories, we'll start to see more positive news. We had a story out this week looking at how we are starting to get the virus under control. But up until this point, it's not really been possible because things were spreading at, at an exponential rate and it was really difficult to, to say that things were going well at that point. But we'll start to see that change 
Just for our reader, Stephen, um, I am going to put a link to Tom Gibbs and Harriet Barber. Our colleagues do produce um, a roundup of good news stories every day. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes for your weekend reading. A survey by YouGov for the University of Oxford Reuters Institute found that a quarter of respondents felt that the media had exaggerated the crisis. Dom, before you get in there, I know you're going to tell me that that (laughs) means that 75% feel we haven't exaggerated it. Have we exaggerated the crisis? I mean, we are going after headlines. I think... That perception might come from sort of an element of 24-hour news um, and the fact that this is all we're reporting on. You know, this is it's taken over our entire lives. So there'll be people will be overwhelmed by the, by the amount of information, the amount of reports on it, and the amount of conflicting reports, which is an issue because that that does lessen trust in in what the media are reporting. But yeah, I, I, I'm sure people are just very overwhelmed and it's a lot to take in. Um, I don't think that necessarily means we're exaggerating because if anything, we're understating what's happening because we don't know the full picture. Anne? Um, I mean, I suppose it depends whether you feel that the media reporting has led to this lockdown. So, I mean, I don't think we can really underestimate how the impact this has had on absolutely everyone in the country. I mean, there's no one, you know, in the whole of Europe, in the whole of Asia and the States and you know, this has had a huge impact. So unless you want to say it's media exaggeration that has led to, um, you know, led to governments feeling they have to in- introduce these lockdowns, maybe there is a, an argument for that. I don't know. I, I don't think so. But, you know, th- this has had a massive impact. So I really don't see how, we, you know, we could have not reported on it in the way that in the way that we do. I think it brings up the fact as well that with a story like coronavirus, more than most other stories, I'd say, comes great responsibility. I mean, publishing the wrong information uh, doesn't only mean a kind of rap on your knuckles from your editor. It's much more dangerous than in other circumstances. And, you know, we've already spoken about at the moment, everyone kind of seems to have become an expert on the subject. If you publish something that's mm. inaccurate, it'll be picked up. It risks it does risk damaging public trust in the media. I mean, let's talk a bit about the responsibility that comes with uh, reporting on coronavirus. I mean, Anne, how aware are you of the fact that your reporting could potentially have an effect on people's health? I mean, if you reported every claim of a miracle cure uh, that ended up coming to nothing, (laughs) you could have encouraged a a change in people's behaviour. Well, yeah, but, you know, I I don't have the same reach that Donald Trump has, fortunately. So um, I don't think... (laughs) I'm going to do that. Yeah, I mean, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, you do have to be really careful because another thing about this pandemic, which, you know, I've reported on sort of science for many years. And there's a thing about, you know, when you publish a scientific paper, it goes to the journal, the journal will review it internally, then they'll send it to a peer you know, it goes through this process of peer review, people outside the journal will see it. And then, you know, it could take you know, up to sort of two years for your paper to get published, which, you know, is ridiculous. But nowadays, all these papers are going on these what they call preprint servers. So they're kind of getting published. So, you know, people like me can just go along and get this paper. And well, we don't really know whether it's accurate science or not. You just have to kind of think because it's not being some of the papers aren't being published by the kind of traditional journals like the BMJ or the Lancet or the New England Journal of Medicine which are very kind of highly thought of so it is quite hard actually to sort of um, understand you know sort what is a good study and what isn't and you sort of have to go you know see what scientists that you trust are saying on Twitter or on you know, there's this organisation called the Science Media Centre, which gather um, 
sort of reactions from scientists in the UK. They're amazing, actually. To and so I think I think it is really hard. And I have I did report on high because there was a paper in France which which first reported on the hydroxychloroquine, the malaria treatment that Donald Trump has really trumpeted, as it were. And that you know I did report on that, but it was a you have to just be really careful. So I remember it was only thirty six patients. I think it was only thirty six. So you just have to be very careful. People get very excited and maybe non specialists. So my my boss is very sort of clear that he wants us to be authoritative and wants us, us, us to not print any kind of nonsense. So you just have to be very clear and just explain that, you know, this is a very small study, if that's the case, and it's very early days. Everything is, I think that you just have to caveat it all the time with, we just still don't know a lot, very, there's a lot we don't know about this virus. So yeah, so it is a responsibility. I think I, I think I, I hope that I'm quite responsible. I think I am quite responsible in the way I ride. We think you are too. And we only have responsible people on this podcast, of course. Thank you. Good. (laughs) (laughs) Dom, I mean, caveats are something that that you're used to, asterisks too, I'm sure. Your work's a bit different because lots of the data that you deal with presumably is verified because it it comes from the Office for National Statistics. Tell us a bit about that. And and do you still have to have as discerning an eye as as someone like Anne? No, yeah, absolutely do. I think particularly in data... um... The Office for National Statistics have wonderful data, and I think we're really lucky in the UK to have them because it's such a reliable source. But then when it comes to trying to find out what's happening in other countries, then it becomes more difficult because we have we have multiple sources like Johns Hopkins University and many others trying to collate all the data from all these different countries. But what we certainly found at the start of the pandemic was that potentially those aggregating websites were were missing small caveats and small nuances here and there. So it, it certainly became a case of going back to different countries' health ministries, trying to verify certain numbers so that we had the full picture. Um, and then it became a case of if we saw discrepancies like that, we'd have to decide whether to drop that country from our analysis or whether to try and find a way to present that data in a different way with all the caveats. And it's almost every story we do at the moment is this is the data. This is why it's certain elements of it might be unreliable. And here's five caveats. But this is the best we have to work with at the moment. But certainly in terms of the UK data, that's there's quite a lag. So at the moment, we only really have reliable data to about the 8th of May because the Office of National Statistics need that time just to collate everything. But that does give us a real benefit of hindsight to find out exactly what's been going on in this country, at least. But how do you cope with that, Don, when you've got data from, say, I don't know, the French Ministry of Health and you don't speak French? I don't maybe you do, I don't know, but, you know, or, you know somewhere <laughs> in Google Portugal. Google Translate's a wonderful tool. Google yeah, I suppose, a I suppose. Tool. But that's, it's, I mean, I had to, do, I did something about the, oh, God, it was to do with testing. It was something that I had to do really quickly and it was in the early days. So it was to find out the number of tests across various countries and, it was all it just took me forever it was I felt like I don't know it must have must be quite hard work for you to find the maybe you just know where you're looking now but it must be really yeah, difficult I, I, sometimes a lot of it a lot of it comes down to knowing where to look I mean I, I think now things are improving because certainly at the start it was a case of going through manually taking hours to collate a, a spreadsheet but now what's happened is you have people people are taking such an interest in this that we, you now have kind of cells of people in different countries who are taking it upon themselves to validate this data. Oh, it's like citizen data journalism. Yeah, yeah, thing, absolutely. Or just or just people working for independent statistic bodies. 
so if you know where to look in certain github pages that has become a huge help and um i think people everyone around the globe has kind of pivoted to make this their priority so you know certain people have furloughs and now just volunteering taking it upon themselves to to try and validate data so that we have the best picture that we that we possibly can at the moment so that's been really useful We've kind of alluded to it as well, but we haven't kind of explicitly said the speed at which we're all working. I mean, and presumably a lot of your work before you would get the scientific reports embargoed. So you'd get them the day before you'd publish. And and now you presumably don't get that. Yeah, no, that's not happening at the moment. So it, it is sometimes quite stressful. And Dom, you know that you're going to get an ONS stats drop at, at nine o'clock in the morning, but you get it and you're presumably trying to, to beat the other papers in, in publishing online, but with that level of accuracy. Absolutely. And and just trying to pick out what's going to be most important to people at, at, at that moment in time. Um, it, it does become quite a hectic rush, certainly on Tuesday mornings when the ONS stats come out, just to try and get get a good handle on exactly what the situation was in, in the week they were reporting on. And I mean, frankly, they, they've started looking into care homes and they've started looking into demographic breakdowns. So um, whether men or women are more affected, what age ranges are more affected, what underlying conditions are the main risk factors. So these are all things that we've kind of been able to take into our reporting. Do you both feel like you have enough information or is that a silly question? Maybe you have you have far <laughs> too much. But I, I asked because a reader called Nigel asked, probably one for Anne, why haven't there been any reported interviews with those that lead the NHS procurement or Public Health England? Nigel says there are lots of press releases, but no actual penetrating questioning of those at the top. That's one I get asked all the time as well. I mean, I have people asking me to ask Public Health England about certain decisions that they've made. Um, and much as I would love to do that, it, it's not always that easy. I, I mean, do you feel like you have, we're being given enough access? People like um, the people at the top of Public Health England, I think they have been, they have appeared in their daily government press briefings. And there's someone called John Newton, whose title um, escapes me, but he's pretty senior. Uh, I think he might be head of testing or something at Public Health England. He was on the Today programme this morning, I heard him. So I, I don't think it's that they, I mean, the head of NHS procurement, I mean, that is really interesting. But these are, you know, someone like him is a, they're civil servants. So they're not sort of generally the ones that would be, um, you know, that you can get because it's the ministers that do the, um, you know, that answer those kind of questions. I mean, it, it would be great to be able to speak to the head of NHS procurement about PPE and what, why we're so reliant on supplies from China and things like that. But, you know, I suppose they've got a job to do as well, you know, as well. You know, they're probably really busy. But um, I think it's, it's a valid point. I, I think we have very good access to scientists and academics, but they're a bit, they're not, you know, they're more independent, aren't they, than the people working from the government. I mean, I think in terms of access to information, I mean, yeah, we've had access to loads of information, but whether it's the right information or not, we don't know really yet. I suppose. I suppose when it, I think that's that's really the key point. That's really the key point is that we have more information now than than we ever have. It's a barrage of information, but it, it's missing huge gaps in our understanding. So, I mean, for example, the pandemic's taken over so many departments that we expect certain data releases. For example, the um, critical care bed capacity and council operations from the NHS, which now just isn't being collated because. All these teams are now so busy with all the other data that's coming through. So I, th I think we're missing out on a lot of quite vital information at the moment. 
When that data comes out, though, I mean, that'll be fascinating, won't it, to see how many, you know, how many cancelled operations and that'll be really oh, no, interesting. They're not even collating the data, so we won't... Oh, they're not even collating it. Oh, my gosh. So yeah. it's not that they've not published it. So that's just not coming, Dom? Just not coming out. Wow. So, yeah, there's a, a, a lot of elements of society, a lot of stories we'd expect to hear about will probably be going unnoticed at the moment. On that note, um, Dom, I'm going to leave you with a, a task rather than a question because um, it's okay. not one I think you can answer off the bat. But Stephen asked... Um, is anyone anywhere working on how to make valid comparisons of strategy across nations, taking into account all significant factors, including preparation and readiness, population size, population density, age, existing conditions? <laughs> Is that on your radar? Sure, that's they are. A, that, that, that's a huge task. Um, I mean, there's probably lots people, of people, people doing aspects. A bit, aren't there? There are, certainly. I mean, I think the closest thing I've seen is um, from the Blavatnik School from Oxford Uni, who have, they have this wonderful stringency index looking at all these different policy responses from governments around the world. So from fiscal support measures to um, contact tracing to effectiveness of lockdown, things like that. That's probably the closest thing I've seen to that. And I think, again, that's going to be something that comes with hindsight, honestly, um, once people kind of come out at the end of this pandemic and have a chance to breathe and and can look back and say, OK, well, this is where things went potentially wrong for some people. Dom Gilbert, data journalist, Anne Gullen, deputy editor of our global health security team. Thank you so much for joining me. And if listeners want to follow you on Twitter, where can they find you? Um, I'm at Anne Gullen. So that's Anne with an E and then G-U-L-L-A-N-D. And I'm at Dominic Gilbert. And I'll link to both our wonderful journalist work in the show notes to this episode. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. This is Coronavirus, the latest from The Telegraph. I'm Theodora Leloudis, and I'll be back on Tuesday evening with your regular coronavirus news update. If you have a question you'd like me to answer on an upcoming show, record it on a voice memo on your mobile phone and email it to me. The address is coronaviruspodcast at telegraph.co.uk. And a final word for me, if you've enjoyed today's show and you believe in the importance of the press, particularly at a time like this, please consider supporting what we're doing by taking out a Telegraph subscription. Listeners can get the first 30 days free at at telegraph.co.uk slash audio and after that it's just three pounds a week and if you want to make me really happy you'll leave the podcast a five-star rating and maybe even a review on apple Podcasts too it really helps other people find the show hold up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.